0: Well, that is a very fitting psalm as a transition to the passage that we have tonight before us to consider from the book Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, part of the wisdom literature. It's found on page 703 of the Pew Bibles that you'll find before you. We'll be considering chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The name Ecclesiastes is a a transliteration of the Greek translation of the idea behind the name preacher, which in Hebrew is kohelet, and both kohelet and uh, Ecclesiastes have in common the idea that kohelet, or the preacher, uh, is the one who's calling the assembly together to hear God's word, to instruct them. And so, like the ecclesia is the church, the the gathered and called people of God come together to hear the word. Uh, Kohelet, the preacher, is the one who's gathering God's people together to give this message to them, to preach this, in a way, apologetic and very reflective message to God's people and to us tonight. And so, with that brief introduction, Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around the wind goes and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So far, the reading of God's holy and infallible word, may He add His blessing to it as we consider it this evening. Well, in the classic movie that most of you have probably seen, perhaps some of the younglings here haven't haven't seen it, some of the kids haven't seen it, but the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. Most of you have seen that, right? Right? Okay, in this movie, this classic, Dorothy, the main character, she's transported by a tornado to a a different world. And as she's there observing this new world with her dog, she turns to her dog and says, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. And to this day, you've probably heard that on the news, we're not in Kansas anymore, it's a phrase that's used to refer to changing circumstances in the world, that the culture, the world just isn't the same as it used to be. Things have changed. Now tonight, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying something similar to us. In his book, in the entirety of, book, of his book, he's saying, basically, I've looked around at this world And we aren't in Eden anymore. The world has changed since the very beginning of creation. We can say that this book is a profound reflection about human experience in all parts of the world. In particular, a reflection about what life is like now after the fall of Adam and Eve in the beginning. After Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 where we read that, God drove the man out, east of the Garden of Eden, away from his presence and his blessing there. So this book is actually helping us to adjust to life east of Eden. We no longer live in paradise. God's good creation has changed drastically in a very real sense, there is no going back to the way things were before. Before the fall, in Eden, in paradise there, what, was, what characterized life in the Garden of Eden? In a word, we could say peace. But the English word is not the best word here. Uh, peace in the Hebrew is shalom, shalom. And we'll get to what that means, but we see that now east of Eden everything is vanity. It's not Shalom, it's vanity. It's what the Hebrew uh, says is "Hevil, hevel, Hevel, Havalim." That's, that's what vanity of vanities is. Now these terms, Shalom and "hevel they are opposites. They're complete opposites. Cornelius Plantica describes shalom in this way, a very good definition. He says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which Natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as, it, uh, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is showing us that God's creation is broken, that shalom is is lost. We don't live in paradise anymore. All of mankind in Adam has been exiled east of Eden under the sun. We spend our days in vanity and in hevel, Now in contrast to shalom, hevel refers to our experience of loss, frustration, disappointment in life. East of Eden, shalom only exists as a a vapor, a mere illusion that fades as quickly as we try to grasp after it, and it's gone. We can think of it in this way, that as we experience shalom in the world, it's kind of like one of those dreams that you have, and in the middle of your dream at night, it feels so vivid, it feels so real, like it's actually happening. And it's a remarkable dream. And when you wake up, in those moments as you're adjusting to reality outside of your dream, you're trying to grab onto that dream and remember it, but it just slips away, and you can't can't remember it, and then it's gone, and you so wanted to share it with your spouse or your kids, but it's gone, just like that. In an instant, it vanishes forever. It's like trying to hold onto water in your hands. And as you try and hold on to it, little by little, the water just trickles through your fingers. And eventually there's nothing there. Just moist hands and inevitably falls through your fingers and is gone. That's how we experience shalom in this world. We can't hold on to it. We can't grab it anymore. For example, we strive to get that next promotion in our job or a place in the university of our dreams that we've been aspiring to, or a position on the team that we work so hard to get at, and you know you have the talent, you know you have the experience necessary, that you're a better candidate than the rest of those who are eyeing for this position, or that job, that promotion. You've worked the hardest, and then you realize that they gave it to somebody else because of favoritism or nepotism. Or one of the other isms, I don't know, there are a lot of them, right? Hevel havelim, frustration. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Another example, you and your husband, in faith, and in prayer, conceive a child with joy. And your heart begins to fill with anticipation and excitement as you, you visualize your future with this new baby. In your family, a new member of your family. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, you have a miscarriage, and your baby dies, and you wrestle with that frustration and that loss. <laughs> or you and your family sacrifice your life savings to move to another state or maybe another country in search of greater opportunities. You get a better job, you earn more money, you buy a house, and then at last, while you're on your sofa, drinking a soda, or whatever it be, enjoying the success that you finally have entered into, the stock market crashes. And you lose everything that you've been working for in an instant. That's not the way things are supposed to be. You see, every experience of shalom in life is residual they are just ancient echoes of a distant and lost world they're fleeting they are like a vapor heaven and with that in mind the preacher then asks the main question of this book the main driving question in verse three for us what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Now the word for gain here in the Hebrew refers to any net profit that allows you to get ahead in life, anything that's left over, any benefit that you earn and it lasts. David Gibson, a commentator, he says that gain here communicates the idea of something left over remaining at the end. It refers to the human desire to show some benefit or profit either financially or otherwise after all of their labor we long for that don't we and this is the question of verse 3 what eternal gain or permanent profit will remain at the end of all of my ambitious effort what will last at the end of my life according to the preacher in ecclesiastes The hard reality that we have to face is that the only thing that will remain after your death is the land that you once walked upon in the same place where it was before you arrived. Only on the day of your death it will go on spinning without you. That's the reality. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth, the earth remains forever that's the only thing that's left that's the lasting profit that's the lasting thing that keeps enduring gibson says we don't change the cosmic merry-go-round of life nothing changes the fact that we work we die and the earth keeps on spinning the preacher demonstrates this realistic perspective with his poem in verses four through ten which is an exposition of that that point he's, he's showing it he nails down this reality for us with vivid imagery taking a lesson that he's learned from creation itself verses five through eight focus on this cyclical pattern this this circular pattern that exists in creation that he observes and this natural pattern that's found in the world in nature corresponds to a pattern that he's observed in human experience east of Eden after the fall. For example, he describes how the sun is chasing its tail. It rises and sets only to go back to the same place again, to rise yet again. Cyclical, the same thing over and over again. The wind moves south, returns north again. The rivers flow into the sea and the water evaporates. The rivers flow back to the sea. It's never full, never full. And this is the way the world is and the way the world always will be likewise this is the way humanity is and always will be people are like the insatiable sea never never full always thirsty always hungry as water enters the sea again and again without ever filling up so things of this world enter into us as humans through our eyes And through our ears, he explains, only to leave again through our mouths as we talk about it and spread the news. And it's a never-ending cycle. It's the same circular kind of motion. All the while, just like the sea, the human heart never reaches a point of fullness, of complete satisfaction. For example, only hours after the best meal that you've ever had in your entire life, they just lit up your... Your, your, your senses, your, the smell of it, the taste of it. It was the best, most delightful food you've ever had. Only a few hours later, you'll be hungry again. You'll be hungry again. Six months after driving your brand new car, you'll be scoping out the new model that's coming out next year. Insatiable. Never full. Immediately after finishing the newest and the greatest Netflix show, Well, you ask yourself well well, now what am i going to watch what's next i need to fill up that void never full you finally get that job that you've been striving afterward and a couple months later you begin to desire a new one with with a better pay and less hours of work david gibson says humans never come to think ah that's it i'm full i've seen everything i've heard everything said everything i've given and taken everything possible i'm full we never arrive to that point we're insatiable always hungry always thirsty we always always fall short of wholeness of life complete joy justice and peace in other words we never reach and hold on to shalom it always slips away from us we only experience passing Illusions of what humanity had in the beginning, but has now lost. That's all we experience. Hevel havalim. That is the big point of the preacher in this book. There is no eternal gain, no permanent profit east of Eden. It is out of our human reach. Now, if we think and go back to the very beginning of the Bible, In Genesis, in the story there, we see that this reality of eternal gain, a permanent profit, was symbolized for us. It was symbolically communicated to us because there after the fall we find that access to a particular thing was barred from humanity. The tree of life, the tree of life, This is the punishment that we face for our disobedience against God, for our rebellion against him, from turning away from him. Genesis 3, 24 says this, The Lord drove man east of the Garden of Eden, and then he placed cherubim, these angelic beings, and a flaming sword that turned every way. Why? Why did God place that at the the doorway east of Eden? For what purpose? Well, the text tells us. It says, in particular, to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, it's my opinion, my understanding, that the tree of life symbolically represented eternal gain, permanent profit, that God had promised to Adam and Eve if Adam had only obeyed God perfectly. And he had, in the beginning, all that he needed all of the resources at his disposal, all of the abundance of life and the shalom of paradise in the presence of God, and yet he rebelled and he failed. And so now that eternal and blessed gain that was promised to Adam, symbolically represented by the tree of life, has been barred from us. We no longer have access to it. It is beyond our reach, a lost dream. That is the hard reality that the preacher is pounding into us. He knows that this is hard to chew on. This is not a very popular message to proclaim. This this won't draw the crowds proclaiming this. We like to think positively. We like to be optimistic, especially here in America. We want to be optimistic and positive about the future. He knows that. He knows we don't like to chew on this reality. So in verses 9 through 10, the preacher exposes how we try to avoid this reality in our life. He shows us how we deceive ourselves with novelty, with what I call also the the cult of originality. That is, we're obsessed with new things, original, novel things, because when we discover something that seems new to us, it feels like we've broken that cyclical cycle. We've broken that repetitive cycle that's trapped in heaven and never-ending. It feels like we've broken out of that, out of the doom and the reality of death and oblivion. New clothes, they make us feel young again, right? Advances in technology make us feel like soon we'll have an easy and effortless life, just as long as we keep advancing with technology. Perhaps progressive politics in our thinking makes us feel like we're on the cusp of a new and improved society of equality and peace. A utopia awaits us. And so goes the cult of originality that always values the new over the old. And to this way of thinking, the preacher has an ice bucket that he drops over our head to wake us up. The the preacher says in verses 9 through 10, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new, it has already been in ages before us. So he's saying here in this, that everything that is supposedly new, that is marketed as new to us, is really just a remake, a copy of something old that's just been dressed up in, quote-unquote, novelty. For example, how many of you have gone to see the brand spanking new Lion King, right? Or the Aladdin, that, that new movie. Oh, wait. Oh, they're remakes, right? Just remakes. they're brand new right that's what the world says in a way now even the internet or the smartphone which seems like these these big new things that have ushered us into the information age even these in fact are simply just revised and improved forms of human communication that's all it is it's just human communication revised and improved it's not something completely new. It's not something that has broken this that repetitive cycle of hevel hevelim. What's because what's new today, quote unquote, new today, will be old tomorrow. Nothing under the sun gives us eternal gain or permanent profit. Nothing. We are always searching for more and more, and the preacher wants to wake us up from this naive thinking that pretends that meaning and happiness and satisfaction reside in newness. In in fact, only a blind fool falls into the trap, saying, ah, see, this is new. That's, That's folly, if we think in that way. Nothing is new. Because in the end, everything, everything, our life, our own legacy, that we're striving to build and leave for others, everything we buy and possess and own, and even the lives of our own children, their legacy and all of their possessions, everything under the sun will die, fade away, and be forgotten. And the earth will remain. That is the reality. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after no remembrance. The other day, uh, my family and I had the great privilege to go to the beach. And there uh, on the sand, under the sun, I was playing with my boy, uh, three-year-old boy, Josiah. And we had a blast. We, we were making a sandcastle uh, with, with a moat around it and seashells. It was a glorious little sandcastle. And in a few hours, the tide rose up. The waves crashed over and erased it forever. It's gone. It's totally gone. That is my life. That is your life. Nothing but a sandcastle. There for a moment, soon to be erased and forgotten, is not not possible to secure eternal gain or permanent profit. Each of us here tonight will die and be forgotten eventually. And to prove this to you, we can have a little thought experiment here. How many of your personal ancestors can you name? How many of your personal ancestors in your family tree can you name? Think of this. We can be, uh, in, our, in conservative thinking, if humans have existed for only 6,000 years, we would roughly have around 300 direct ancestors 300 of those 300 how many names do you know by heart and for how many of those do you know do you know their life story the beginning of their story the end and their greatest accomplishments their greatest achievements i think the vast majority of us here tonight could probably count how many of those people that we know on two hands maybe even less Less than 10 of our 300 ancestors, our personal ancestors of our own family tree that we actually know. And the rest have gone forgotten, erased. So, especially young ones, don't, don't fool yourself with the ambition of glory and lasting legacy. East of Eden, it just simply does not exist. What we do in the face Of this reality uh, is what the preacher talks about in the rest of this book. What do we do if there is no eternal gain and no permanent profit? Why live? What should we live for? Well, in the absence of eternal gain in the course of this book, the preacher will direct us as readers to the good portion in life that God gives us to enjoy the good gifts of life while we have them within our reach. In chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or have enjoyments? Later in chapter 9, verse 9, he says this, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words, in the midst of hevel chavalim, in the midst of lost frustration, enjoy the small pieces of goodness that God bestows upon you, every day enjoy those moments while you have them to the glory of god enjoy what is within your reach today instead of killing yourself sacrificing for a better tomorrow always longing for a better tomorrow and never stopping to enjoy the blessings of today because there is no guarantee of a better tomorrow under the sun you don't know if tomorrow you will die Slow down then. Enjoy the life that God's given you. Enjoy the fruit that is growing amidst the thorns and the thistles and the weeds. Because again, you don't know if tomorrow you will die. Now that is just part of the biblical answer, right? There is more. There is more in all of Scripture as in, in how we are to respond to this reality. There is more. There is... Good news, gospel for us. For the God of Shalom, the one who possesses Shalom and from whom it flows, he has entered into the Hevel Chavalim, under the sun. God himself took on our own humanity in, the Jesus, in Jesus of Nazareth. He experienced personally the frustration and the vexation and the toiling under the sun that we all go through east of Eden. And the good news is that Jesus alone has broken that repetitive cycle. He alone has done this. He has once and for all brought something new and with a lasting, permanent change. He has come as the new Adam who, unlike the first, fulfilled his job, obeyed God perfectly, and won that eternal gain, the the profit which is permanent. And Jesus didn't only do this for his own personal gain, but to give that as a gift to all those who believe in him. And so by simple faith in Jesus alone, not by toiling, not by striving with our obedience, but by faith in Jesus, we gain eternal life. A gift, permanent profit in him. In him, we have the new creation, which... Uh, whose glory will never fade or diminish. And in him, we also have a lasting name as well. Our names are written in the book of life. God will not forget you. In Jesus, you will not be forgotten by the Father, and kingly renown awaits you in his kingdom. All of these benefits, all the gain and profit is yours freely, by entrusting yourself to Jesus, by seeing him as your only hope and your heart's desire, as we will soon sing. And as glorious, uh, as a glorious end to this wonderful story of the Bible, in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we are told that believers in Christ will then have access to the tree of life. Jesus through his work, through his obedience, has brought us back into the garden, so to speak, to be within reach of the tree of life, to reach what we have lost, not by our own striving and toiling, but by faith alone in him. And that's the point. We can't win it ourselves. Similar to the good portion that God gives us in this life, this lasting profit, this eternal gain, is a gift that God gives from his hand god freely gives it according to his sovereign grace the exodus from the desert of the hevel hevelim in this life an entrance into the paradise the new creation our promised land full of shalom is attained by faith alone not by your works it is a gift and so friends trust in him tonight trust in him again with all your heart Trust in the only one who is able to transform this life full of hell into a life full of shalom. And rejoice, think of this with me, rejoice that on that last day we will arrive in a renewed world. We will be transported, as it were, into a new world. And we will look around and feel and sense and experience the goodness and the true newness of all that Christ has won for us And we will say to each other, we're not east of Eden anymore. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this reality check, which is hard. And there are truths that we don't want to accept, that we don't want to linger over, that we try to avoid and distract ourselves with various forms of entertainment to to try and avoid the reality of our own death in our own fragile nature, that our life is like a fleeting vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. And yet we we thank you for this reality check because it drives us to Christ, the only one who can offer us true and lasting gain and eternal profit. Thank you for the free gift of grace that you bestow upon us and the promise of the new creation and the fullness of the shalom that Jesus won For anyone here that might be present, Lord, that still has yet to trust in Jesus in this way, who may be toiling and striving with their own obedience according to the law of God or their own way of trying to find happiness and fullness of life apart from Jesus, may you, by your Spirit, give them a reality check. Show them the reality of their own fleeting life. And what awaits us all, death, that they might turn to Jesus. Give them that faith and that trust in him that they too might share with us in the joy of our eternal hope in him. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, we now have opportunity to respond to God standing with a song of application. One of my favorite hymns, 376, O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire. 376, please.